Case Keenum to the Broncos. Didn't see that one coming. Apparently, this wasn't that big of a shock to hardcore Denver fans. An insider had floated recently that the Broncos liked Keenum and he was a possibility. But for a team that desperately needs a new quarterback, I'd have never guessed John Elway would have gone with Keenum. So what does he do now with that fifth pick? Does Denver keep it and then draft another quarterback? Does Denver trade the pick and get more picks later? A popular theory is the Broncos will still draft a quarterback, use Keenum as a bridge guy, and then slowly work in who they hope will be their franchise guy. Word is Elway likes Baker Mayfield. Elway liked him at the Senior Bowl, and presumably Elway still likes Mayfield today. In fact, I saw him at the Sooners Pro Day a little more than five hours ago. If Elway and the Broncos will want a quarterback with that fifth pick and Baker Mayfield is available, Denver would be crazy to pass on the Heisman winner. If Mayfield becomes a Denver Bronco in the next two months, and if he's given a truly fair shot to win the starting job, battling Case Keenum and Paxton Lynch and Chad Kelly and whoever else is in that quarterback room, Mayfield will win that competition. If Mayfield goes to Denver, we could be looking at another Russell Wilson, Matt Flynn situation. Remember back in 2012, Seattle signed Matt Flynn to be the Seahawks starter and then drafted Wilson in the third round. Wilson then won the job in training camp, and Flynn's been an afterthought ever since. Who knows what Denver's going to do in the draft, but if John Elway doesn't grab another quarterback and intends to go into this season with Case Keenum as a starter for the foreseeable future, I think we all can finally say objectively that John Elway is incredibly poor at evaluating and developing quarterback talent, despite being a Hall of Famer. I'm Lee Benson, and this is West of Everest. Tavares James into tailback, gets the handoff, nothing. Ball is loose and is picked up by the Sooners. Reggie Smith, 20, 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Oklahoma 60 yards. Reggie Smith recovers and returns the Javaris James fumble 61 yards for a touchdown on September 8th, 2007. The opponent, Miami. The scoop and score from Smith would make the score 21-3, and the fifth-ranked Sooners would go on to shellac the Hurricanes 51-13. Hi again, everyone. I am Lee Benson once again. Grant will join us here in a moment to talk about the Sooners holding Pro Day this week, along with some other nuggets from that first weekend of spring ball. We'll also give our thoughts on the opening round matchup of the NCAA tournament for the Sooner men's basketball team. But first, it's your weekly reminder that we are on Facebook. If you're on Facebook as well, please locate the West of Evers podcast page. Give us a like if you would uh, be so kind. We'd really appreciate it. Also, if you're listening to the show on iTunes, feel free to give us a rating. And if you really enjoy listening, Go ahead and leave us a review as well. Also, as you all know by now, you can email us westofeverest at gmail.com. That's westofeverest at gmail.com. Questions, comments, concerns, segment ideas, anything, we'll get back to you if you email us. And finally, if you're on Twitter, you can follow Grant and I's hot takes. I'm at Lee Benson, News 9. Grant is at Grant Benson 25. So now let's bring in Grant and see how everything's going in Minnesota. What's up? Lee, it's not incredibly cold and it's sunny, so Minnesota is generally going well right now. Minnesota is going well. 
Yeah, I'm just saying. Plus, you know, kind of a lot of there's a lot of news today. Today we're recording this on Wednesday of this week. There's a lot going on today with the OU Pro Day and of course March Madness starting tomorrow and of course today was the first official day of NFL free agency, which is always a a really interesting time. So, I'm I'm ready to talk some sports, Lee. So am I, and just a precursor before we get to the basketball topic at the end of the show. I have done legitimately zero research into Rhode Island and this matchup because I was frankly surprised that Oklahoma made the NCAA tournament and I was not tasked with going to Pittsburgh to cover the team. Dean Blevins and Brian Mueller are there right now as we speak covering the team, so they're all on it. So I may not be very good when we come to basketball, but when it comes to football, I'm on top of things today. I feel pretty good about that. So you want to go over some news items that broke since our last uh, show? How yeah, about the, been... uh, yeah, how about the... Well, you start with you start, Grant. I don't, I don't want to step on you. No, yeah, no, you're good. Sorry about that, Lee. Of course, we brought it up last week. I think um, uh, it was it was it last Friday the show dropped. So it's only been, yes, of course, a yes. handful of days since this. Uh, since this, but of course, we told you about Calvin Anderson, who is the grad transfer left tackle from Rice, who is deciding between OU and Texas. Also, was deciding. Uh, with Michigan and Auburn as well, where the other two schools, they kind of escaped me last week, and so I just wanted to correct myself there. Although it is all for naught because, Lee, he did pick Texas. Calvin Anderson uh, will be a Longhorn next year for one season, so Texas gets to immediately plug in a a mid-round draft prospect at left tackle on their offensive line. That's a, a very valuable pickup for them. And so, Lee, that means... We will most likely see, at least I guess it hasn't been confirmed, but it's it's just kind of assumed amongst a lot of people around the program that Bobby Evans will slide over to the left tackle spot now. And I think we can finally start, you know, to talk about that position group, the offensive line that is, um, and who, who the two new starters on that offensive line are going to be. We can start finally talking about that now because the the other variable which was Calvin Anderson is, is no longer in the picture so Lee what what are your first thoughts on this what, what do you think what do you think it means for for Bobby Evans and maybe Drew Samia and, and the other people uh, who are going to be in competition for that that other tackle spot well I think it means that uh, what you and I kind of assumed and most people probably assumed as well without Calvin Anderson in the picture Bobby Evans is most likely going to move over to that left side and when Lincoln Riley was last asked about that position last week before our uh, last podcast certainly this idea of Anderson coming to OU was still on the table and he didn't mention Anderson by name at all of course but uh, he wasn't he wasn't uh, able to say you know what yeah we're going to move Bobby Evans um, and then we're going to let some of the newcomers or some of the underclassmen fight for that other right tackle job so uh, I would expect Evans to move over. just makes the most sense. Right now, Evans is Oklahoma's best tackle. I mean, maybe even best offensive lineman. And um, I had one other point to make. Oh, yes, and then Lincoln Riley also had availability on Saturday, but I believe it was before Anderson made his decision. So there wasn't any follow-up questions asked of, hey, um, now that Calvin Anderson I'm not sure if you're he's even allowed to mention Calvin Anderson I'm not sure how that works but um, there hasn't been any other clarification by Lincoln Riley as far as okay that position now is more clear with Anderson not coming to OU so uh, we're at the same spot as we were last week I guess is my point when it comes to Lincoln Riley's thoughts on this position what do you think well I mean I think we can finally start to honestly you know, talk about what we think is going to happen. And actually, the more that I've reflected on it, I, I do think it's a cinch that Bobby Evans is going to move over to the left side. I, I just don't envision any scenario where that doesn't happen. 
But where I think it gets interesting is what you're going to do with Drew Samia. Now, of course, he is a returning starter at right guard, but you have another guy who kind of, you know, would split time with him and would also get a lot of reps, uh, being Cody Ford, who can also play that right guard position. So you have kind of a natural person to be able to plug into that spot just in case you do decide to move Drew Samia over to right tackle, which is the position that he played his his true freshman season at OU. He started uh, 14 games at right tackle his, his freshman season at OU. The last two years, he's he's been at right guard. Um, so that is definitely an intriguing, you know, an intriguing option, I think, because, you know, in, in that instance, it, it, do, it would seem like really, you know, you would have four returning starters. And I know you're replacing Orlando, Orlando Brown, but you would at least have four guys who have coming back who have started games in, in the past before. And so, you know, and obviously if, if, if they don't move Samia over, I, I've already said, I think that that other tackle job is, I, I just have a feeling it's going to be Adrian Ely, the the redshirt freshman. He's he's kind of the the young guy that that has a lot of buzz around the program, and, and I wouldn't be surprised um, if if he just kind of slides over to the right. He's a left tackle, but wouldn't be surprised if he if he slides over to the right, a la you know Bobby Evans a couple years ago too. So yeah, I mean even though Oklahoma loses Orlando Brown, I think we can all safely say that the Sooners are still in really good shape on the offensive line, and uh, even without Calvin Anderson coming to Norman. I'm incredibly confident in this group, and it certainly helps that Bill Biedenboe is still there coaching these guys up, and uh, it, it'll be a fun competition to see who emerges as the starting five, and if it's kind of similar to how it's been the past couple of years where they have five solid starters, but then they have a guy like Cody Ford who can still fill in, and, and it's almost like there's not enough offensive line spots for him where if there was, let's say, six offensive linemen somehow, then he'd be a starter. Uh, they just don't have any room for him, so I'm I'm curious to see how this all works out, and I think the offensive line uh, is certainly in good hands, and uh, I'm sure we'll find out more as, as spring practice continues after spring break. Yeah, and we'll we'll, we'll move on from here, Lee. I know we, there's we don't there's really just not a lot of information to go on yet on the offensive line, but I echo what you said. I, I think um, I, I think there's a lot of people who are who are expecting OU to take a step back on the offensive line next year, and you know I, I'm sure they will. There will be a bit of a step back, but th- th- this is going to be this is not going to be a sieve unit. You still have. Uh, two all, or I guess Ben Powers is is technically the only All Big Twelve offensive lineman you have left. Uh, Bobby Evans is is certainly one of the five best offensive linemen in the Big Twelve. He was last year. Uh, he was somehow left off of All Big Twelve teams. So you got you got two of those two of those guys coming back. You got Drew Samia who started damn near 40 games in his career on the offensive line in the Big 12 and of course Cody Ford as well plus you got some really highly recruited guys who have who have already kind of waited their time and have had a year or two in the strength and conditioning program so I think the Sooners are looking looking very good on the offensive line for now but I do want to move on to something uh, which I thought was by far the most interesting news coming out of uh, the last handful of days and it centers around Lee the linebacker the linebacker position and I thought there was just some really interesting tidbits that we learned from from Mike Stoops and, and Caleb Kelly and Kenneth Murray over the weekend and, and earlier this week as well. And I want to start with this. And I, I think this is very interestingly because it, it kind of harkens back to what you were talking about a few weeks ago when we were trying to, to you know, to predict the starters on defense for the upcoming season. And Lee, Mike Stoops confirmed on Tuesday during media availability that Caleb Kelly has been moved to the weak side. So he is no longer going to be a strong side linebacker. He will be on the weak side, which is where Emmanuel Beal played this past season. Um, and so I, I, this changes a lot, I think. you know, I, I had said that I thought Kenneth Murray was going to be moved over uh, to the weak side in the offseason and someone would supplant him in the middle. I 
with, with this news, I, I just I don't see that happening anymore. Lee, what do you think? Well, it almost it could be one of two things. Yeah, I mean, as of right now, Kenneth Murray still is the middle linebacker. Lincoln Riley said that last week, but it also could mean that they're they're gonna maybe try to move him to the strong side and fill in for where Caleb Kelly was, and still open up the spot for the middle with somebody else like John Michael Terry. Or, oh my gosh, uh, all these linebackers, their names are escaping me that uh, we've gone over before in the last three weeks. But um, uh, that, I mean, it's not that surprising, really, because, again, like I said, I think a couple weeks ago, with this defense, just not one player or position really stands out to where they're playing at such an elite level to where, like, uh, you, you think, oh man, I can't imagine that guy losing a spot or getting moved. I mean, just because he's moving to the weak side, I mean, who knows? That could actually be a a positive thing for this team. I'm sure it will. I mean, they're not moving him unless they think it's it's for the best and for the defense, and then probably for his future. Uh, but it certainly is interesting that uh, this early they've already confirmed that there's a uh, change being made. So that's that's certainly newsworthy. That's for sure. Yeah, and I I think it brings up questions too about what they're going to be doing with scheme in the offseason, whether or not they're going to try to transition uh, to kind of what the the fad defenses has been in the Big 12 the last couple of years, which is basically operating out exclusively out of the dime package. Uh, it's bas- that's what that's what Texas did this past year, and it gives you a little more uh, flexibility on the defensive side if you have guys who can be multiple in what they can do. Um, and so we'll see. There, there's a lot of teams who are who are playing in this this kind of fad dime formation that don't really employ a, uh, a Sam linebacker uh, because someone's got to be taken off the field when you add an extra defensive back and in, in this situation it would be the Sam linebacker taken off the field so I think what this is is I think this is a move to one you know for sure get your two best linebackers on the field and kind of in the middle of the field in this situation that would be uh, Kelly and Murray both on the field at the same time certainly your two most physically gifted linebackers and um, I think everyone you know everyone knows Caleb Kelly is probably physically a little more powerful than someone like uh, Emmanuel Beal on the weak side being in the inside might might really help him uh, another thing Lee, I, I did want to bring up and this is interesting Caleb Kelly made the comment I believe this was this week uh, this was this weekend after practice but he did make the comment that he tore his labrum uh, in his shoulder mm-hmm. in week three against Tulane so Caleb Kelly was hurt all season long and so maybe that's why he, he didn't take that step forward that everyone was expecting in his sophomore season. Also, Lee, I did want to point out that I, I have read a lot of uh, a lot of pieces over the last, you know, during the season two, but I've kind of revisited them a little bit. And, and there there were some, you know, some pieces mostly talking about scheme and um, Ian Boyd is a guy who does some really good write-ups over at SB Nation. He's a he's a Longhorn, but he still knows what he's talking about in terms of X's and O's. But but he he was claiming that Caleb Kelly was a major liability for for the Sooners last year playing on the strong side, just because it's very easy to be uh, manipulated in in pass coverage uh, on on the strong side, and so off and, and you know also Caleb Kelly playing hurt is uh obviously didn't help that so so this also might be you know an idea or a way to shore that up as well lee i I, i'm looking here because the on the strong side obviously you would be a a little more you would be a little more responsible for pass coverage and obviously covering some more space because the strong side is uh the side of the field where where there's more space i i think this is per i i really wouldn't be surprised if that's ryan jones's spot 
at the beginning of the season. Uh, that's a guy that I keep hearing a ton about. Uh, if you go look at his, his physical numbers now, he's gotten a lot bigger. He he started out as a wide receiver here, and they moved him to safety really quick all of last year, and now they've moved him over to linebacker. He's a big guy. He's a big rangy guy, and he's a guy who's you know who's played safety before, and presumably he would have good coverage skills. Um, former wide receiver, so you know he can probably run. So I, I I'm going to call my shot right now, Lee, and I I think the three starting linebackers next year, and I think it this is this is moving towards it looks like a, you know a, a strong side linebacker, a Sam linebacker maybe won't be on the field a ton of this upcoming season, but I, I'm I'm calling my shot now that when it is that's going to be Ryan Jones's spot, um, and, and potentially Curtis Bolton as well. He, he's a little undersized and also coming off an injury. So uh, certainly an interesting, I, I thought, interesting development of news there in the last few days. And also I did want to throw out there too, just because I I, I, I may have I, I may be starting to, to develop a, a bit of a reputation for kind of a Kenneth Murray hater. Um, I did want to throw this out here just to just because uh, just as something that I'm, I'm impressed with. And I think this is a very good sign. Kenneth Murray has uh, said that he has watched tape of that Rose bowl literally a hundred times. So hopefully that that's something that he's doing and he's getting better. And he, he's real. I, I, cause I think a lot of the problems in that game were, were mental. We're not knowing where your gaps are going to be um, and whatnot. Also another really interesting side note that Mike Stoops said uh, this weekend Kenneth Murray Lee did not take a rep at middle linebacker in practice after the third week of the season. So the, the same time that Caleb Kelly got injured. Um, and so that would explain a lot. And I, I presumably the reason that occurred is because of the, you know, who was, was it Brian Mead who was playing for Emmanuel Beal late in the season? They just didn't have any depth at, at that position. So I would assume that he probably wasn't taking reps at middle linebacker just so he wouldn't get hurt. And now that we know that Kelly was hurt the entire time. So, you know, maybe, maybe that had a lot to do with it. You know, obviously we're not, we're not completely privy to all that information, but it, if it did have a big effect on his performance over the course of the season, that certainly would explain a lot. What do you think, Lee? I think the most interesting thing out of all of that is the fact that Kelly played almost the entire year with a torn labrum because I, I mean, that's up near, that's like basically near your shoulder. I mean, that's who knows like how much movement, how much you can move his arm. I mean, is it, it makes me kind of wonder, I mean, one, it's incredibly impressive that he could play the entire year and he never mentioned it and I would never guess that he was injured he looked fine to me uh out there playing I mean granted I suppose he's not a quarterback so he's not not throwing passes he's not using his labrum uh in a way to which we would easily be able to see if he's uh, injured in that area or not but it kind of makes me wonder too yeah I know their depth at linebacker is not great or was not great if he if he would have sat out and not played, uh, I mean, was the backup or the alternative that much worse to Caleb Kelly? I mean, he if, if that's true, if he really was a liability like that one article that you mentioned says, and I apologize, I can't speak too much to linebacker play. I'm not uh, as informed and I don't understand really as much about the linebacking responsibilities and, and things like that, especially in a 3-4 as I do when it comes to the secondary. So I, I can't give my thoughts on whether or not he was that much of a liability or, or not. But I just think it's fascinating that he played the entire year injured like that, which in turn, it seems like that that hurt Kenneth Murray's development if he wasn't able to get that many reps in practice. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe we're learning these things now after the fact that could have certainly added to 
why Oklahoma's defense was so poor in 2017. Uh, but it just makes me wonder, what was the alternative to Caleb Kelly? What if he would have been told, nope, have surgery or rest and get it all healed up and maybe get an injury red shirt, something like that? Uh, would things have gone the same, better, or worse for the linebacking core? That's something that we'll never know the answer to. So that's what that, that's how I think about this whole situation. And I actually think I can add a little bit of context to this, Lee. I actually have – I've had a torn labrum before. It was partially torn, so I do I, – I can – give a little credence to what it feels like. Um, it, it's painful. And so it's labrum is more of a throwing injury. So especially for me, it was, it was not excruciatingly painful, but it was, it, it was very painful to throw a baseball, um, for, for example, but actually the biggest, uh, the biggest hindrance of the torn labrum is the strength in your shoulder. Um, I, I noticed a precipitous drop in the strength of my shoulder, including range of motion um, and all of that when, when I was rehabbing through my partially torn labrum. So I, it was definitely the str- – your, your shoulder just feels weird. You don't feel like you have a lot of strength in it. Um, you feel like you're working twice as hard to get up as much weight. So I, I, I'm assuming that's probably what Caleb Kelly felt over the course of the year, and it would make sense. I mean, he's, he's a strong side linebacker on that, on that side. Uh, playing basically in a 3-4 task with setting the edge. You know, you got to have long arms, you got to be strong and having, you know, a right or left shoulder that isn't full strength. I, I I could definitely see why that would hinder his performance. Maybe not as much in pass coverage, which is where he was which is where he was really exploited last year by other Big 12 teams. But uh I I I can see why it would make a difference. So a couple other notes from the Saturday availability and then also the Tuesday availability because those are the two availabilities that we got with Oklahoma before uh, spring break, which is next week. Uh, that's the last time we get to talk to him. And then, of course, Pro Day, but these are guys, Pro Day are, are guys that are uh, away from the program now or gone from the program. Uh, Lincoln Riley didn't have a whole lot to say on Saturday after his long press conference last week. Um, he was asked about practice without Baker Mayfield first time that uh, he's experienced that now as a as a coach at Oklahoma and Riley as you as you'd expect he downplayed it and said he didn't feel like it was that different without Mayfield and just he's got a new team and he's focused on getting the new team better and I know you like this Grant you like talking about uh, you like I feel I think you you're one of those people and maybe a lot of people are like this I kind of am now because you've taught me this you listen for who the coaches name when they're asked about certain position groups or certain classes of players. And the early enrollees were a big topic of conversation at Saturday's practice availability because now they had already seen a practice at least, so they'd seen these players on the field. And Riley said that the early enrollees belong. They didn't look like high school kids out there. And here are the names that he mentioned in order. He mentioned Jalen Redmond. He mentioned Ronnie Perkins. He said that he that Buki had an interception during team drills back on Saturday. Then he mentioned Miguel Edwards, Jaqueline Crawford with some nice catches. Patrick Fields showed up. And then he said they all belong. So he named almost every single player. I believe he left at least one player out, though. And off the top of my head, oh, it'd be Ron Tatum. Ron Tatum, I think, would be the one player that he didn't mention out of the early enrollees. So for whatever that's worth, it may not be worth anything, but just thought you might think that was interesting. No, I do. Uh, do you have any be- thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the idea behind that is that, you know, when someone is presented with 
with an opportunity to name someone off the top of their head, presumably they don't have a lot of time to think about it. You know, the first person that comes to their head or the first people that come to their head is, you know, would presumably be the people who they're most impressed with. Lee, I did want to, I did want to correct you. Ron Tatum is not an early enrollee. Um, so the, the, the one, oh. yep. So the, the one person that he wouldn't have mentioned would have been TJ Pledger, uh, the, the running back. I don't, I don't think I, I don't think you, uh, or, or Starlin yep. Baldwin. Yep. Uh, Starlin Baldwin and TJ Pledger. Well, and Baldwin's not Baldwin's not uh, practicing this yep. spring because yep. he's recovering from surgery. Okay, yep. So that's that's my fault. And yeah, so and never mind. Yeah, Tatum's not in school yet. And so yeah, w- when it comes to early enrollees, I think I've said this in the past. The only thing I I generally care about in spring practice um, is seeing whether or not they look physically ready to play college football. You know, I I have cruised around. I've seen some pictures and some videos from practice of this weekend and also earlier this week. Uh, guys who absolutely stood out as who look like you know physically ready to play college football uh, that just jumped out at me were Jalen Redman and Ronnie Perkins absolutely have college football bodies right now and Brendan Radley Hiles as well he he looks thick enough and, and probably ready to play the other guys I didn't see a ton of I saw Patrick Fields do some drills he looked he looked fast he looks good but he's he did look a little small so yeah I. Do not be surprised if you see, you know, Jalen Redmond and, and Ronnie Perkins on the field this year. They look like men out there. As far as Mike Stoops, the players that he mentioned, uh, he was actually specifically asked about Buki. So that name was put in his mind. So he mentioned Buki. He said, yeah, Buki looks good. But after that, he mentioned Jalen Redmond, Ronnie Perkins, Patrick Fields. And uh, Stoops said that uh, all those guys showing are showing signs of ability to play at this level. And he specifically mentioned their focus and maturity at this stage, not having been on campus very long, already being that focused and that mature. So that stood out to Mike Stoops. And then one final note on just availabilities before we get to pro day. Grant Calcaterra was made available last Saturday. And as you know from this podcast, you may uh, remember one of our our early episodes brought up that Calcaterra is really good friends with Baker Mayfield. And during the bye week, Mayfield went to California and hung out with Calcaterra's family. So he was asked about not having practice or, or working out without Baker Mayfield for the first time. And Calcaterra called it weird. But uh, he said that the team has gotten a lot more comfortable throughout winter workouts without Baker Mayfield. So they're, they're coming along. They're feeling good. And then the last thing that stood out to me listening to Calcaterra talk, and let's be honest, we all kind of hope that Calcaterra is the next Mark Andrews, the next elite tight end at Oklahoma, and certainly he has the talent to be that. He was asked, what have you learned from Mark Andrews? And Calcaterra said the biggest thing that he learned from Andrews is the mental side of the game, how to read the defenses, after the ball is snapped, how to recognize gaps and where you need to be, and then also blocking while in the open field. So I found that to be interesting that there's part of the game where it's after the snap of being smart enough to realize where you got to go and be in tune with the quarterback and and find those open spaces and things like that, which I think is incredibly important, especially this day and age when offenses are so much more high level than maybe they used to be. So it was interesting to hear Grant Calcaterra talk about what he learned from Mark Andrews. Any thoughts on any of that or should we move on to pro day? Well, I, I did. I did want to bring up. I just want to backtrack. I, I you you did mention Patrick Fields with all that stuff. I I, don't, I thought you did a good job talking about Grant Calcaterra. I also love Grant Calcaterra. I think he's going to be a stud um, in, in this offense coming up here. Um, I I did just want to throw out there. 
because you mentioned Patrick Fields, I, I, I really do think when it's all said and done and when the book is written on this 2018 class, I think two of its of its lowest rated signees who are Patrick Fields and then the other safety, um, Delaire and Turner Yell, I think they're going to be two of the best players in this class. I, they're, they're, they're not huge guys, but on tape in terms of how good they are at football, I, I don't know if I saw anyone better than those two on, on tape in this class. They're just small. So I'm really, really interested to see um, how both of them do as they progress. And of course, Turner Yell won't be here until the summer. Um, but I, I did just want to throw that out there and just kind of, you know, call my shot one more time. Yeah, you're in a shot calling mood today. Just making those uh, way too early predictions yet again. You're amending some of them. All right, let's move on to OU's Pro Day, where Jeff Bidette did himself a lot of favors. Mayfield, Andrews, and Flowers, by the way, did not do any of the physical testing. They just did some position drills on Everest. By the way, hey, they worked out at Everest. So, Grant, everyone was at the Everest Center on Wednesday, which is named after our podcast, if uh, you out there all haven't figured that out yet. By the way, Jordan Thomas ran the 40, and he improved it, and he did some position drills. So Jordan Thomas had a much better 40-yard dash. So let's get all let's, let's hit all the notes of the, the pro day. Um, you've got notes here, Grant, in the rundown. Um, I think we'll stick by this, and I will kind of just throw in my two cents here and there because I don't want to just give out my thoughts and then maybe step on some of your notes. So first off, Jeff Bidette, how did he do today? Well, Jeff Bidette may have made himself some money daily, at least – I think he was someone that I wasn't. I was kind of iffy on getting drafted. He didn't have a very productive um, final season. He was he was injured, but he did have a productive career at Kentucky, and he certainly has the physical makeup of an NFL wide receiver. Lee Jeff Bidette ran a four two seven forty yard dash. That would have been good for the best at the NFL Combine this past year. Um, what's more, he also had a thirty nine point five inch vertical. Um, and then he also had a 10-foot, 11-inch broad jump. Both of those would have been good for second amongst wide receivers at the Combine. So, Lee, Jeff Bidette is a freak athlete who's really fast. Are you surprised? Well, no, we saw that on the field. Uh, the 427 is absurd. I mean, that's it's, – it's pro day, so numbers are certainly a lot more forgiving. Uh, I can't imagine he would have ran a 427 at the Combine because uh, that's just – I mean, that is unbelievable. I mean, under 4.3 is just ridiculous. But um, his 4.27 sure looked fast when I saw it at, uh, at OU on, on uh, Wednesday. But uh, whenever he was finished and clocked, I don't think anybody would have guessed that he was under 4.3, sub 4.3, because that's just ridiculous. So uh, good for him. Would have been the best, as you said, at the Combine. And um, he shows all the other athleticism as well with his broad jump and his vertical. And he looked just fine catching passes from Baker Mayfield during the position drills. So, yes, Jeff Bidette may have worked himself into this draft, and I have no idea where his uh, his his draft stock is right now, but no matter what, or there's, there's no doubt that it certainly has gone up uh, from Tuesday now to Wednesday. A lot of eyes raised seeing that 40-yard dash. Yeah, I can't imagine at this point in time that he won't get drafted. He's just he's got He's got three years of good tape. Um, you know, or good film on tape at Kentucky. And then, you know, hey, he's got he's got an entire month of good tape at Oklahoma. A lot of people forget he was the team's leading receiver the first month of the season, Lee. Um, and he got hurt. He got hurt. And so I, I think 
there's just uh, there's going to be some what ifs too. He could have just been another weapon there towards the end of the season to go along with Marquise Brown, who when Jeff Bidette got hurt, he, he definitely took advantage of his opportunity. So can you imagine if you had two, you know, two burners on the outside, two deep threats like that, who you know could presumably go at about four three in the forty yard dash? That's that's pretty insane. So. I think that that might be a what if thing that that I think about for for far too long into the future. Um, Lee, moving on though, the other person that caught my eye here at Pro Day was Devonte Lampkin. He he did um, he he certainly brought on some criticism of self when he when he declared early for the draft. He still has two years left of eligibility. A lot of people thought he did leave early. Uh, he's if his pro day is any indication, he may have made a, a pretty decent decision, or at least uh, I, I don't necessarily know if now he's going to be in in uh in danger of not being drafted lead Devonte lampkin is 345 pounds he ran a 5.0840 that is insane at 345 pounds that would have been seventh amongst the defensive tackles at the combine um, but i did want to to mention that he would have been uh the six people who would have been ahead of him he has about 35 to 40 pounds on all of them and he's 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 in the same ballpark, and so a, a good kind of comparison would be a first round prospect uh, Vita Via, who is who is a Washington defensive tackle. He is roughly the same size as Devonte Lampkin, and he is a first round prospect. And he ran the forty at uh, a five point one forty, so he ran a five one. And Lampkin also put up thirty one reps on the bench, which would have been sixth amongst amongst defensive tackles of the combine. Lee Devonte Lampkin is a physical freak. I'm really wish that he was not leaving and that he was going to be anchoring the, that defensive line next next year yeah I mean it's it's um one of those decisions where we were all certainly disappointed to see Lampkin go but physically he's ready there's no doubt about that and he was probably just ready to go and, and stop going to school and get paid I mean sometimes you just you're you don't want to do this anymore you just think okay my body is what's going to get me a lot of money and not a lot of people can do that and his body is only going to be good for however many years and right now he's in tip-top physical shape and he can only get even better and at 345 running almost a five flat 40 uh more context to that orlando brown's about 10 15 pounds heavier than lampkin but runs a five six three at pro day which is six tenths of a second roughly slower and just about 10 pounds heavier so I mean Lampkin if he was match up against Brown well okay that would have been I almost made a really dumb comparison because a lot of people match up against Orlando Brown would look like they were burners uh no offense to Orlando Brown but um yeah Lampkin leaving Oklahoma that's difficult for the Sooners good for him though uh it'd be shocking if uh if he didn't get drafted and certainly he will he's he's too much of a physical freak and that's such a position there at defensive line defensive tackle that's always a need in the NFL and in any level of football that somebody will take him and best of luck to him because um he has a lot of potential and uh, man he's incredibly strong the the bench press reps at that plus the speed uh, uh, yeah, the, the, limit to that the, guy. the speed. I, I just, I honestly, I can't even really put that into. Con- I mean, that is flying for a guy of that size. And also, I, I want to. I've compared him to Vita Via, and that, I mean, that's flying. A five one at three hundred and forty seven pounds for Vita Via is flying as well. So, um, Devonte Lampkin physically is is kind of in the same class as someone like Vita Via, who is a you know who's an All American this past year. Um, also, also, it should be it should be noted that it, it does hurt that Devonte Lampkin is is leaving the Sooners program. 
he, he would be a very valuable person to have next year. I, I think it is worth mentioning, though, that his his size and you know his value maybe is not maximized in in the Big Twelve, and I'll I'll just leave it at that. Would you agree with that? I yeah, I mean sure, but uh, I mean his in, in the, with the theory that you know the Big Twelve throws a lot more, so he's constantly trying to rush the passer or, or, or not, he basically he's constantly not having to stop and plug holes and stop the run uh whereas in other conferences maybe they run the ball more and he's a lot more valuable is that what you're going with yeah yeah i mean but though i mean if, if the sooners are going to be if if they're gonna you know really try to jam a square peg into a round hole and continue to play the three four they need someone in the middle like Devonte lampkin he's you you have to have someone like that playing nose tackle in the three four so that it, in in that context it really does hurt but obviously we i i hope Devonte lampkin gets gets drafted as high as humanly possible makes as much money as humanly possible and has a great nfl career emmanuel beal also with wheels and i didn't see that coming at all grant four four five for Emmanuel Beal, now granted, um, I did not get his weight. I'm not sure if he weighed in at all. He was listed at for OU around 218, I think, during the season. So I mean, he's he's an incredibly undersized linebacker, and if he's trying to play linebacker at the next level, which it's hard to imagine, I mean, he's got to be incredibly fast. And and four four five is flying, and and I would never have guessed that for Emmanuel Beal. Yeah, you know, I I mean, I'm. It surprised me too, but it, it. I mean, now we know why he was on the field. I mean, the running a running. Just forget about linebacker for for a second. Just on human terms, what a four four five means. I, I don't think anyone realizes how fast four four five is. I mean, that's just. I mean, you're you're faster than ninety nine point nine percent of the people in the world. You know, with more decimals, if you're on a four four five. So, I mean. That it just it honestly it, it makes me it makes me more upset that the defense wasn't better. I, I just especially the linebacker core. When you have a guy, when you have a linebacker, you know, admittedly an undersized linebacker like Emmanuel Beal, but if you got a guy who can run in the four fours at your second level, you you, you got to find a place for him to be successful. And now I, I'm I'm kind of questioning why Emmanuel Beal wouldn't have been on the strong side um, with with how well he moves in space. I just I don't I guess I'm just. I don't get it up, up to this point. Again, I, I can't really make any strong, strong thoughts on who's where at linebacker and whatnot because I just don't know enough about the position and all the um, all the ways that each position moves and, and what they're asked to do. It's just so. Anyways, yeah. It's uh, so Beal had a, had a nice pro day. Uh, we'll we'll see what happens with him in in the future. Uh, we talked about Orlando Brown briefly earlier. Improved. I mean, he had nowhere to go but up, but um, improved his forty by more than two tenths of a second. He had eighteen reps on the bench compared to fourteen reps during the combine. So Orlando Brown a better day, and um, so good for him. I mean, I don't I don't know if. I mean, we'll see if if that really changes scouts' minds. I mean, maybe it will. I mean, and he looked fine in the in the position drills, and uh, he's getting re- worked really hard in the, on the on field drills. And I mean, he was. Well, I mean, all these guys are always sweating bullets by the end of it because I mean they're put through real workouts. I mean, they're I mean they're in shorts and t shirts and stuff. But I mean, by the time they're done, I mean they 
they burn a lot of calories. They've they've sweated a lot. So uh, Brown looked good on the on field, looked strong, and uh, he had a nice day today. Do you have any thoughts on Orlando? No, I mean it's same deal. He he did improve his numbers, but really, you know, the numbers still aren't very good. But it, it is good that he improved them, and so I, I think everyone just needs to kind of revert back to the tape and realizing that you know he it just in terms of of run blocking, he is just a dominant force and and likely will be in the NFL. And I think people will see that on tape. And finally, a couple secondary guys, Grant. Jordan Thomas and Stephen Parker, one of them was at the Combine. Thomas, Parker was not. JT, much improved 40, almost a full tenth of a second. He had a 4.64 in Indy, a 4.55 at Pro Day. So good for Jordan Thomas, and he looked fine in his position drills. And uh, Stephen Parker runs a 4.55 and uh Looked respectable, putting up nice numbers. So, I mean, Stephen Parker is certainly a guy that has the ability to have success in the NFL. It's kind of surprising he didn't get invited to the Combine. Yeah, I I am too. He's just – I would guess a lot of people look at him and and think he maybe just doesn't have the size – you know, to be an NFL safety. And also, he he has struggled in pass coverage in the past. He is a good tackler, though, so we'll see. Uh, there's he he kind of reminds me of a of a poor man's Tony Jefferson in the in the Oklahoma sense. So we'll see. And and he he did put up some respectable, measurable uh, numbers. You know, he had a he had a, a, a ten foot six inch broad jump, and that was only five inches worse than Jeff Padet. That would have put him in the top, you know, ninety percent of the people at the at the Indianapolis Combine. And he had a good vertical jump as well. So so Stephen Parker's showing out, showing that he's a good athlete, and he, he ran a very respectable four five five. 40 as well so uh steven i i i don't think he's going to be a guy who gets drafted but i I hope he catches on with the team and and has a good nfl career so those are the pro day thoughts um just uh let's see you know again i was there um let's see if i can think of some 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 little tidbits Uh, i saw john elway saw vance joseph let's see i think of all the nfl guys that, that i saw that you recognize uh ken wisenhunt was there for the Chargers. Uh, Marvin Lewis was there for the Bengals, I saw. Um, let's see, any other head coaches? I I can't recall any other head coaches. Of course, Gary Kubiak was also there, who was, I'm not even sure what he's doing at the Broncos now, but uh, he's part of the Broncos front office or something like that. Um, let's see, a ton of OU guys. I mean, all, all the players were there, basically. I mean, Kyler Murray was there. Uh, all the running backs were there. I saw Rodney Anderson, uh, all the receivers, C.D. Lamb, Marquise Brown was there. Uh, Joe Mixon was there, uh, former OU player. Was Joe Mixon was there. Uh, ran into J.D. Runnels, said hi to him. He's doing well. Um, Grant, I finally met Bob Stoops. You did. Did you like, like you actually actually talked to him or you like shook his hand and introduced yourself or what? I shook his hand, introduced myself, and there is zero – point zero percent chance he even remembers it happening um it literally lasted about 20 seconds he was clearly trying to get on and talk to somebody else but uh we happened to be standing next to each other for about five or ten seconds and i was like you know what i didn't get a chance to introduce myself to you when you were the head coach so i figured i'd do it right now and uh he was over by all the media guys all the media people and i said so are you part of the media now coach and he said nope nope i said well okay (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he kind of walked away man so uh, gotta, that's my bob stoops meeting story gotta love bob stoops gotta love it uh nope see you later yeah he uh he had no time for that 
Absolutely. No time at all. Like, can we can we go back to something? I, I'm I'm just remembering this now because after you read your opening take and I was thinking about it, but we we got off track. I I want to talk a little bit about that Case Keenum contract because I I find that just I find it so interesting, and I I really haven't had an opportunity to talk to anyone about it. So the the Broncos leave the Broncos gave Case Keenum a two year thirty six million dollar contract, so eighteen million a year, and I I can't decide if you're giving that money to him to start for you for the next two years or, or I don't know it, to me, it really does to me. That looks like they, they want case Keenan to be their starter for the next two years. And I would, I would almost go to Vegas right now and put, put a lot of money on them drafting Josh Allen. I, I think that's almost certainly going to happen. Yeah. I mean, that would be a, a stark contrast from case Keenum. You got a guy that's a little more undersized, journeyman quarterback who had his best season a year ago and then you go with super talented arm you know a big arm pretty athletic Josh Allen who certainly hasn't proven himself at all accuracy issues um I mean John El- excuse me John Elway's already gone with a couple other random quarterbacks and Paxton Lynch Brock Osweiler and if that's what they do Grant I mean especially if Baker Mayfield's there and they don't pick him and they pick somebody like Josh Allen it just it makes you really wonder about John Elway man because he got lucky with Peyton Manning everyone knew Peyton Manning was good and Peyton Manning picked Denver and I think John Elway was given a lot of credit in recruiting Peyton Manning to Denver so he certainly gets a lot of credit for that of course getting a Super Bowl out of that but when it comes to young quarterbacks the guys that Elway has picked in the last three or four years have been all head scratchers man and now I'm seeing a report today that Trevor Simeon just got traded to the Vikings so Simeon's gone, so he's out of the picture for, for Denver. So now it's just Paxton Lynch, Keenum, Chad Kelly, and um, I think that's that's the threesome, I, I believe. Mean, and, so. yeah, you know, I think they're obviously going to draft a quarterback, and so now it just, you know, who's it going to be, and is it going to be at, at that five pick where they are? It does kind of seem, and obviously we'll touch on this more next month when it's actually draft time, but there's always a team, Lee, that is never really connected to a quarterback, but then goes up and gets their quarterback off the top of my head. I can think of the Jaguars with Blake Bortles last year, the bears with Mitch Trubisky. Um, who's it going to be this year? And I, I, I start to think I, I, there's always a team that comes up and just surprises people with the quarterback they take this year. I, I just, I kind of start to get the feeling that the giants are going to take Baker Mayfield at two. And I, I just because there just hasn't been a lot of smoke there, and this is total conjecture. This is a total just kind of hail mary on my part. I have no inside knowledge to back this up, but I just on a day where I'm just calling a lot of shots, Lee, I'm calling my shot right now. <laughs> I think I, I think the Giants are going to surprise everyone and take Baker Mayfield at two overall. Well, you want some information that might make you feel even better about your shot call right there? Yes. Guess who I saw today at. OU Pro Day talking to Lincoln Riley for about two or three minutes. Uh, New York Giants head coach Pat Shermer. That's a good guess, but no, I did not see Pat Shermer. It was New York Giants offensive coordinator Mike Shula well, there, talking to Lincoln there Riley. There you go. There you go. It con- Baker Mayfield to the New York football Giants confirmed. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they're, and I honestly had no idea what Mike Shula looked like. I'm just very happy that Oklahoma distributed credentials with people's names on them and uh, I could not have picked Mike Shula out of a lineup 
And I remember I saw him and I saw Mike Shula on his thing. And I thought, Mike Shula, is that that's the Panthers offensive coordinator, right? And so I went on my phone and Googled it. It's like, oh, okay. So I get that's right. He got fired. Now I guess he's with the Giants. And um, so he's he was the quarterback coach for a bit and then the offensive coordinator in Carolina. So he's been around Cam Newton for a lot of years, Mike Shula. And now he is in New York. And so according to Grant, his next quarterback will be Eli Manning and Baker Mayfield. I just I, I, I think there's there's four teams that I think are just kind of a match made in heaven, you know, for different reasons for Baker Mayfield. Um, two of them are, are are both of the New York franchises. I think Baker Mayfield is a perfect you know, I know this is kind of a cliche thing to say, but I think he's a—he's just—he's the perfect personality for the New York market. I think he would love it, and I think he would do really well there. And also, just kind of for more of a stylistic approach, I think he really fits in well with the Dolphins and the Saints. I think those are the two teams that I think his his career success would would maybe uh, would maybe be maximized. But I think from a personality fit, I I think he's uh, he, he can certainly handle just the circus that is the New York media market. I think he's the perfect quarterback for that. Yeah, I mean, Baker, he likes the media. He really does. He eats it up. He uh, he had a huge, huge uh, amount of media around him today when he was being interviewed. I was told I didn't get a chance to go out Saturday to the office. Actually, no, it was uh, Tuesday. Tuesday was defensive availability, but Baker was there at practice, as, as you might expect, because the next day he had pro day. And uh, I heard that Baker was out there at practice, and once the media showed up, he, he um, made his way towards the media nonchalantly and interacted and and it's just he sees the cameras and he sees the media and I think he enjoys himself he's very comfortable around that and uh, you know it for Baker Mayfield that's great and everything's going to be great for him as long as he plays the way he does on the field and he's not bad but the second that he actually doesn't back up a lot of his talk and he struggles which didn't really happen at all at Oklahoma I mean there's only one time that I can really think back to Mayfield being not very good and that was that Texas game I think his first year where they lost to Texas and Texas was bad and Ohio State at in Norman yeah. he had yeah he, yeah those are, those are the two bad games that I can remember that he had and he wasn't even really that bad against and he Ohio was super State. hard on himself yeah he was super hard on himself he was in both of them as he always he was does. bad by Baker Mayfield standards so anyways I mean now that's twice in the span of three seasons so it was mostly good mostly good now what will happen to Baker Mayfield if he struggles and, and he has multiple games where he's not he doesn't play well? Because really, he's not experienced that at the highest of levels. And he and will. I'm sure even in high school, he, I'm sure he even will in high school, he, he pro- right, right, yeah. I mean, everybody does. Um, people are going to figure him out, and um, he'll have a lot of growing pains. I mean, the NFL is a whole different animal, but still, at this time, at this juncture... For my money, I just think he is the most prepared, most ready quarterback of this entire class. And and to me, I, you know, a month ago, two months ago, I was kind of like, ah, you know, if, if I was the Browns, if I was uh, the general manager for the Browns, I, I literally had to pick somebody at number one. I, I wasn't sure if I'd pick Baker Mayfield just because of the history of what everyone brings up about his height and and just. Historically, in the NFL, it has not panned out as well. But now, as time has gone by, and I've got more information, I've I've watched more tape, and I've watched him play, and I've heard him talk, and I just, to me, it's it'd be easy. I, I would have no problem if I was John Dorsey in Cleveland taking Baker Mayfield number one and being confident that I just got a quarterback that can that can turn the Browns around. But if- and. Uh, you know, but that that's me, I guess. That, that not everybody. I, I see what you're saying, but I, I'll I'll push back just to be kind of a just a douchebag about it. Because I, I I think I mentioned this to you. 
sure. I mean, if, if, if Cleveland wants to go take Baker Mayfield, if he's their guy, then by, by all means, go for it. However, if they take him number one, they are badly mismanaging uh, their draft picks and everything else. I've said it. I've, I've been I've been beating the drum on this for the last two weeks. The, the one person, the one player that Cleveland should absolutely be taking no matter what is Bradley Chubb, the defensive end at North Carolina State. You win Super Bowls in this league by rushing the passer and having a really good quarterback. Um, Cleveland should absolutely grab their, you know, their second uh, pass rusher at number one in back-to-back seasons uh, to presumably have, for the future, the best pass rushing tandem in the entire league. And then also just go, go get your quarterback at number four. Um, whoever that may be, and so I'm. If you know, I, I'm sure the the brass for the Cleveland Browns is intently listening to this podcast. But if you are, I, the the obvious thing to do if you if you really want to build a Super Bowl contender is to go get that pass rusher and then go get your quarterback. Um, but I digress. And you the sort of, obvious pushback on that theory, which I think that's a pretty good theory, uh, and I hadn't thought about that until you brought it up to me, you know, outside of this podcast a couple weeks ago. But the 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 pushback to that theory is if you are a team that has a quarterback that you really, really like, that you think this is my guy, you got to get him because that quarterback is a lot more important than that pass rusher. But the caveat to that is are you correct about your decision? Are you correct about that quarterback that you really, really like? If you're the Browns and let's say you like two of these say what is it about five or six quarterback prospects let's say you like two of them do you make the risk of like well let's take chubb because he's a you know i've been told he's an elite pass rusher i haven't watched a whole lot of film on him so i'm not sure i mean have you watched a lot of bradley chubb film i mean is he as good as advertised is he one of those can't miss guys yeah sure i mean i've seen him play in college he's really good he's and he looks like an absolute monster in his pads so I mean, <laughs> and he, he and they still they do wear pads in the NFL. I've been told they do. Yeah. And he, he put up some really good testing numbers at the combine last week. Um, so I I mean, he's he's the consensus best pass rusher in the draft. You know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I'm a I'm a pass rushing expert to know how to. Uh, but when he it, it's not very often there's a consensus definite number one pass rusher in a class. It happened last year and he went number one overall. Um Bradley Chubb certainly had a more consistent and more healthy career in college than Miles Garrett did, and I think athletically they're right, they're, yeah. they're very similar. So I, I guess I'm just I I think the narrative of this year with just the the really strong quarterback class plus what everyone with Saquon Barkley says he's the best prospect ever doesn't matter if you take him in the top ten you're you're stupid. Um, still, I you know I'm it's it's interesting i i think cleveland has a lot of options especially with having the first and fourth picks i think a guy they absolutely need to get is bradley chubb and if you're smart enough because because of the picks that you have you can get both of the guys as long as you're smart with your picks so it'll be it'll be interesting to see how it plays out i have a feeling though that they're going to end up drafting darnold and saquon barkley and and they'll be mired in mediocrity for years to come still well, if you listen to a lot of the media, the the chances of the Browns getting Darnold and Barkley are incredibly low because a lot of people are thinking each one of those guys could go number one. So if that's the thing, if that's true, then who, if one of them goes one to the Browns. I mean, the other guy won't be there at four. Well, yeah, that's depending on who you talk to. Well, I mean, well, that's the idea is you would you would theoretically, if they wanted Barkley, you would have to take Barkley first um, because I, I the Giants are heavily heavily linked with Barkley who knows if that's true or not or if that's just you know them throwing stuff out so when they can you know secretly draft Baker Mayfield but 
I don't know. We'll see. It's it is of my opinion that that's what the the Browns should do. If I and, and honestly, I, I'm still not sold. I, I don't. I I if I was the Browns, I wouldn't be sold on Baker Mayfield either. And so I, this is where you would need to do your due diligence. And the Browns are a really really poor organization. Um, and so it's everything they do is going to be under the microscope. And and I'm still under. And I know Baker's had a really good attitude about it. He said that he's the guy to turn that franchise around. Um. I don't. I don't know, man. It, it's going to be really hard to turn that franchise around. Before we move on to some college basketball talk, in a podcast where you've called a lot of shots today, you've made a lot of predictions. I'm going to make my big prediction right here, my big hot take prediction that uh, you're not hearing anywhere else. I haven't heard this anywhere else. I'm not as high on Saquon Barkley as really anybody else. Um, I don't see him as a can't miss stud awesome running back like Adrian Peterson was back in the day like I thought Ezekiel Elliott was you watched him on film he was great and Leonard Fournette those three guys I think were just can't miss awesome running backs I don't see that in Saquon Barkley to me he's more of a home run hitter Uh, he struggled to pick up yardage whenever his team wasn't able to open up holes for him I know that his offensive line wasn't the best at Penn State but there was a lot of games last year where he just was kind of a non-factor And that never really happened to any of those other running backs I mentioned, with the exception of Fournette. When he played Alabama, Alabama would shut him down, but that's because Alabama is Alabama. I mean, Ezekiel Elliott seemingly always had huge games at Ohio State and was just a freak and jumped off the tape. Uh, Same thing with Fournette for the most part, and obviously Adrian Peterson was was awesome in college. Saquon Barkley to me is not not like any of those guys. There's no way I would take him very high in the draft. I think... There are other running backs in this class. This is an incredibly deep running back class again. I like guys like Sony Michelle, even Nick Chubb, and Darius Geis, maybe even more than Barkley, just because those guys, you can get those guys at a way later time than you can get Barkley. I I'm just I'm not buying that Barkley is this can't miss elite three down running back that's going to be so good in the NFL because he really wasn't he wasn't that three down running back kind of guy at Penn State. And can he be? Can he be in the NFL? Sure. You'll get to the right situation. Maybe he can. But uh, what we've seen so far, that's just not who he is. So I'm not nearly as high on Barkley. And there's no way if I was in the top part of this draft, I would I'd be taking him. So that's my uh, that's my that's my hot Saquon Barkley take. Well said. Well said. I don't necessarily agree with everything you just said, but um you know, I, I can see why. I, I just, I, I just don't value running backs in the NFL. I, I'm sorry, I don't. I know a lot of people. Well, I do. I, I do when they're stud elite guys. I mean, the Cowboys are so much better with Elliott in the lineup. I, they just it, are. It doesn't matter unless they, they still, they still need Dak Prescott to play at an elite level if they ever want to win a Super Bowl. Ezekiel Elliott's never going to change that. Leonard Fournette, no matter how good he is, will never elevate Blake Bortles to anything other than that. I, I just, it's. People in the NFL are just way too good of freaking tacklers where if a team decides all out, if they're going to stop you, they're going to stop you. Um, and, and I just, I, I, I just, it's, it's, it's the least valuable position in the NFL and it always has been. And it still is in, e- even though, even though guys like Camara and Ezekiel Elliott and Leonard Fournette have made it seem like maybe that's not the case. I just, the starting running backs in, in the Super Bowl two months ago or a month ago were Dion Lewis and Jay Ajayi. So, yeah, I was actually going to use that as a as a way to back up your point. I mean, both Super Bowl teams were running back by committee teams where you got Deion Lewis and Rex Burkhead and Jay Ajayi and LeGarrette Blunt. 
times. It's just it, it's just when when you have an organization that is hurting just in so many areas, like the Browns, I I, I just think it would be a huge mistake to take one of the least valuable positions in all of sport. I, I just think it would be foolish. And also Corey Clement for the Eagles, one of the most valuable players in that game, who had that fantastic touchdown catch, as well as some other catches. All right, Grant, let's talk a little college basketball. OU, by the time you listen to this podcast, OU may have already played Rhode Island. In fact, Oklahoma plays the very first game of, well, technically it's not the first game of the tournament because the first game was Tuesday and that playing games, whatever. But for all intents and purposes, Oklahoma and Rhode Island is playing the very first game of the tournament, 11.15 a.m. Thursday morning. Uh, Grant, will you be at work, and will you have, get a chance to watch this at all? Well, I'm honestly, I haven't even decided yet. I, I am going to work. <laughs> I am going to work on Thursday. I haven't decided whether or not I'm going to leave early to watch the OU game. That's, I mean, if, if, this, was, if this was like, you know, the Buddy Heald OU team, I certainly would be leaving work to watch the game. Um, this is a team where I'm just, I, I, I wrote down here in our rundown, Lee, I said, you know, who they're playing and what time the game is, and then I said, do we care, and can they go on a run? So, Lee, I'm gonna <laughs> a- I'm gonna ask you both of those questions separately. Do we care about this game? Well, okay. Obviously, we care about the game. Should we care about the game? Oh, yes, we should care about the game because last season Oklahoma was not in the tournament. And this year, Oklahoma now is back in the tournament under Lon Kruger. And it's a chance to watch our favorite team play in the NCAA tournament, which is always neat no matter what, even though this Oklahoma team has been listless for the last six weeks and seemingly doesn't even want to be there. Granted, when they were told that they were in the tournament back on Sunday, those guys certainly seemed excited. They didn't seem like a team that was like, ah, man, now we got to keep playing. Uh, does that mean anything? No, it doesn't because this team, in theory, should have had the fire underneath their butts two weeks ago when even though the NCAA tournament or the NCAA selection committee basically told us that Oklahoma wasn't really even on the bubble. I mean, they weren't even in the the, the playing games, the first four. They weren't even in that. They weren't even the last four in or whatever. But even though that's the case, there's no way they could have known that. I mean, this team... I, this team was on the bubble, and it should have had a fire un, under their butts in the Big Twelve tournament. The thing, okay, we got to win. We got to win at least one of these Big Twelve tournament games to really, really feel comfortable. And and they looked listless against Oklahoma State and lost. So I mean, this team has had reasons to get motivated, and have not been motivated. So just because now it's March, it's the NCAA tournament. Now everybody's zero and zero. I'm still not going to buy that this team is all of a sudden going to be super motivated to come out there and play incredibly tough defense. And frankly, as Long Kruger has said all season long, this team has been tied to making shots. If they make shots, they have success. If they don't make shots, they do not have success. This team has not been making shots for the last six weeks, with the exception of one, maybe two games. Since that's been the case, it's hard for me to imagine all of a sudden they're going to start making shots in the NCAA tournament. So, uh, but I know I'm getting long-winded. But again, to answer your question, we should care. There is that small chance. To answer your second part of your question, there is that small chance that Oklahoma can go on a run because of Trey Young, which I know is a very generic talking point, but it still is true. That's a great answer, Lee. Of course we should care about this game. Of course. It's <laughs> it's March Madness. And I know they've been awful the last you said six weeks. Lee, they've been damn they've been awful for two and a half straight months. 
literally since literally since they won the Big 12 opener, it seems like at TCU, which was a couple days before the Rose Bowl, they've been awful. Um, so I, I mean, we, have not won a game away from Lloyd Noble Center in 2018 since then, since that game I just mentioned. Yeah. So, but still, I mean, it's still March Madness. It, it still could possibly be fun. And and Long Kruger's right. This it's they're tied to making shots. Um, there's there's clearly a correlation between them making shots and then and them playing hard. Um, when that doesn't happen, they sulk, they lose confidence, and they, frankly. I'm not going to say they stop caring, but they they certainly are not mentally tough in that in that respect. So sure, you know this this could be a lot of fun if they come out and they just they start to get hot again. And it's obviously Trey they're going to go as far as Trey Young takes them, but also they're going to go as far as as guys like Christian James and Brady Manick take them because when they're shooting the ball well, you know th- this team takes off as well. And they they could theoretically if they're shooting well, they could make up for if, if Trey is still not shooting the ball particularly well. So. Um, should we expect them to beat Rhode Island on Thursday? Absolutely not. I think everyone should be going to this into this game, assuming that you're going to get the same OU that you've gotten the last two and a half months. Um, but you know what? If if a different OU team shows up, if if that OU team from November and December shows up, it'll be a really fun game to watch. So um, it's it's an interesting team. Rhode Island is is the exact type of team that gives the Sooners struggles. Really, I mean. Not really fair, seeing that every type of team has been given the Sooner struggles over the last two and a half months. But they are a slow team. Uh, per per Ken Palm, I like Ken Palm a lot, just like I like the S and P a lot in football. Uh, per per Ken Palm, Lee Rhode Island is 148th in tempo, so they're a team that's kind of in the middle of the pack in the country. They do like to slow it down. It looks like a little bit. Um, they're a balanced team. They're 63rd on offense, 39th on defense. So they're a team that can defend. Um, they're a senior-laden team. They were in the tournament last year. This is a team that's certainly going to want to be there and is going to want to play hard. And OU has to match that intensity. I'm not sure they, they can. Um, but, hey, like you said, there's always that possibility that Trey Young could you know, decide to play really well again. or Not not that it's a decision, but you know, the, the magic could happen. You, you really never know. Is it going to happen? Almost decidedly no, but... Really, you never know. And of course, you know what, Lee, the, the committee basically did punish OU. They, they put them in the tournament, but they also gave them, for a team that wants to have a miraculous run, they gave them the worst draw like I've ever seen. They have, they're on the same side of the bracket as two teams, Duke and Michigan State, that are in all likelihood better than the number one seed in the region, which is Kansas. And they're also better than, than two other uh, number one seeds, them being Xavier and... Uh, the other one is is escape or Xavier and Kansas. They're they're better than both of them. So uh, chances of a run are are very slim to none. Mostly just because of of Duke and Michigan State on that side of the bracket. But I mean, you never know if they if they make shots. They proved in November December they can beat damn near anybody. All right, a couple things. Number one, for the first time in forever, Oklahoma. Well, okay, I guess. Now, like the Alabama games coming to mind. Okay, so they they did play a non Big Twelve team, but I'm going to say the, for the first time in a long time, Oklahoma was playing a non Big Twelve team. That means something because for the most part this year, when Oklahoma has played non Big Twelve teams, the Sooners played a lot better. So even though it probably just is coincidence that that happened to be at the start of the year when Oklahoma was playing a lot better, probably, but uh, that gives you that gives me a little bit more positive thoughts of like finally. Not playing a Big 12 team, what will happen? Second thing, no disrespect, but this is a great draw in round one for Oklahoma. Rhode Island? Like, Would you rather Oklahoma play Rhode Island or Oklahoma State tomorrow? 
Oklahoma State. Rhode Island's a better team than Oklahoma State. I haven't seen Rhode Island play one minute of basketball. I'm going to guarantee you that Oklahoma State's a better basketball team than Rhode Island this year. There's no Rhode Island hasn't played. They played one team this year, I think. One top twenty-five team this year doesn't matter. Who did who did North Dakota State play three years ago when they when they beat Oklahoma in the first round? Nobody doesn't See, that, matter. But that was it. But yeah, but that was a year when Oklahoma actually like there was thoughts of like, oh, this team is actually maybe decently good. Nobody thinks this Oklahoma team's any good. So you're going against a mid-major. Like if they would play like a real team, like a, a I shouldn't say real team because Rhode Island's a real team, but a Power Five team. I mean, I'd have no no thoughts. But now you got Oklahoma playing against a mid-major team who probably was overrated all season long. And according to Vegas, where people make all their money, Rhode Island and Oklahoma are pretty close in the Vegas rankings. Oklahoma's, according to Las Vegas, is the 44th best team. Rhode Island is the 39th best team. And that's tied with Davidson and Alabama. So these teams, and that's why the line is like a push, or a push, a, it, a pick right it, now. It opened as a pick It's It's gone to Rhode Island minus two. As, as it should. I mean, you'd be crazy to put money on Oklahoma right now. You would be absolutely crazy to bet on OU. But um, I, you know what? I said no disrespect to Rhode Island. Sure, disrespect to Rhode Island. I don't know anybody from Rhode Island. I, heck, the, they might beat OU by 30 on Thursday, and you know what? I'll be wrong. But right now, I, I think if Oklahoma was, has a chance to win a game in the first round, playing Rhode Island is a pretty good shot because – I. I don't know. I mean, they they couldn't even win their conference tournament. So yeah, I, I think you're 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 underrating Rhode Island a little bit, Lee. I, I think you're. I, I used to think too that mid majors coming to this tournament weren't really good teams. That's just not the case at all. Uh, I mean, Rhode Island's a good team. I I I think if if gun to my head, if someone asks, I, I think Oklahoma. I think the Sooners are going to get run off the court tomorrow. But um, all right. And also, the A10, I believe, is a really bad conference this year. The A10 was bad this year, so I, I will I will concede that. So, hey, I, I hope I'm wrong. I, I hope the Sooners come out and they're they're shooting well and they they defend with intensity. I, I just I just really don't see that happening. I, I I don't think this is a great matchup for OU because this is a team that's going to play hard and they're going to defend hard. And I OU has shown the propensity for that, especially in the last six weeks like you said to just to crumble under pressure like that um I, I don't see any reason why that would stop now especially um in the NCAA tournament when presumably the lights would be brighter so we'll we'll see yeah. I don't know I I think it's gonna it's an interesting tournament I, I looked at the bracket and I, I just I have no idea what's gonna happen Virginia was my was my early favorite that was before they announced that their best player essentially is going to miss the entire tournament with a broken wrist. So I'm now just going to going to cross out Virginia as a champion. I have absolutely no idea who's going to win this thing. Nor do I. I haven't even looked at the bracket yet. So we you could do this whole thing of like who do you have in the final four and things like that. First of all, nobody cares who I have in the final four. And second of all, I haven't even picked the final four yet, so I couldn't even give you an answer. Uh, well, Michigan so State hasn't go. been there in four years, so you might as well just go ahead and. And, and plug them in right now. When was the last time Michigan State was in the Final Four as a as a high seed? Well, Michigan. Okay, so the last time they were in the Final Four would have been the year that they beat the Sooners in the um, in the Sweet Sixteen. Uh, so, uh, Wait, so I'm not sure. You don't, they beat the Sooners in the Sweet Sixteen. Yeah, do you not remember that? That would have been that was that was Heald's no. uh, junior year. Oh no, I have no memories of that. Oh, okay. So that, yeah, I didn't follow Oklahoma basketball. Really at all? I mean, I didn't even see that uh, 
that OU Villanova Final Four game where they lost by about a hundred points. What I don't working. I don't know what game you're talking about. That game never existed. Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? Yeah, I did watch that game. It was awful. It was a terrible, awful, maybe the worst game in the history of OU basketball. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know that that first half against Baylor a couple weeks ago was pretty bad. <laughs> but uh, all right, well. We'll see. I mean, maybe Oklahoma can give us one last thrill in March and, and make the basketball season fun for for a small time. Hey, uh, if, if, we'll if, see. If they win, if they win this this season is is a success as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, my 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 expectation all season long was get into the tournament. That was it. I thought that would have been a, a good step coming off an 11 and 20 season. They've done that. If they can get into the round of 32 and play a, against a team like Duke in the second round, I think this is a this is at the end a wildly successful season and i think um that that would be nice it would be a nice way to end you know a, a pretty rotten last two months of the year yeah that's the only way i would say it's a successful year is because of the way the last i say six weeks you say two and a half months has been if oklahoma does win an NCAA tournament game and is technically one of the top 32 teams remaining then you, yeah i'm with you you got to call this a definitely a successful year but two and a half months ago i was thinking boy this team can win a national championship <laughs> yeah yeah and you know what in in my lifetime lee i don't think ou has ever won a game in the tournament as an underdog and, and i think that would be cool a, a game going in where they're not expected to win um, i think it'd be cool if they won it because i just off the top of my head i cannot think of any uh any scenario where they've you know where they won as an underdog so i think that would be cool especially in the well, NCAA tournament I, I know it's happened and I, I know they were a 12 over they had a 12 over five upset uh damn near 20 years ago but i, I mean i don't really remember that i, I wasn't I it was a 13 over a four it was 13 over four that's right that's that's after that was that's what made the NCAA change the rules that uh power conference teams can't get low seeds like that anymore so um yeah, I just think it would be neat. This is a game that literally no one is picking OU, so it would and and rightfully so. No one should be yeah, picking that. Yeah, nobody nobody should be picking OU. Um, so it it would be cool if they went on a run. You know, this this did happen a couple years ago. Everyone was just totally shocked that Syracuse as a ten seed was in the tournament. If everyone remembers, and of course they went to the Final Four. Uh, so we'll 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 see what happens. <laughs> yeah, uh, the real quick, the guy I work with Brian Mueller, he's a Syracuse guy. And he brings that up, that that Syracuse team, because he was working in Syracuse, and he he says like, I just it didn't make any sense that they made the Final Four, like they just weren't a good team, and all of a sudden they went on a run. So, uh, yeah, that team has definitely come up a couple times this season when we're discussing Oklahoma as how they had this high expectations, but then all of a sudden has been a disaster. Yeah, so, Lee, I I want to leave the pot, and we're gonna we're gonna sign off after this. I just wanted to to bring it up because it's just kind of a funny thing, especially with the Sooners playing the very first game on Thursday. Um, that means, you know, if they do win, you'll be able to watch the rest of, you know, the rest of the first round, knowing that your team is on. You can kind of root for things that you want to happen on your side of the bracket. And I just wanted to bring it up the last time the Sooners were playing in a 10-7 game. That's when they played San Diego State. I think it was it was Buddy Heald's freshman year. Uh, they lost to San Diego State by like 15 in the, in the first round. But if everyone remembers, they were paired up on the same side of the bracket as Georgetown the same year that they lost a 15-seed Florida Gulf Coast. Um, that season. And so I, I just thought it was kind of a fun thing that season, Florida Gulf coast beat Georgetown and then the Sooners played the game after. And I was so pumped for that game 
because in my head I'm thinking, oh, 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 wow, the Sooners can win this game and they can almost get kind of a free a free ride of the Sweet 16 playing a 15 seed after this. Can you imagine if the Sooners were to somehow beat Rhode Island yesterday? And can you imagine if if Duke is is inexplicably locked in a close game with Iona? Just can 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 you imagine how hard I will be rooting for Iona? Like I mean, it will be it it'll be like Rose Bowl Grant rooting for Iona. It would be insane. Very nice, very nice. That would be uh, that's a that's a fun picture to have in my head. All right, that's our show. Enjoy March Madness, at least the first weekend of it. Hopefully, you can enjoy it. Even if Oklahoma loses, you'll still enjoy it. It's the it's one of the best times of the year. We'll be back next week with more Oklahoma football talk. Until then, for Grant, I am Lee. This is West of Everest.